Well, good morning. If you got your Bibles, get them open to Matthew chapter 28. If you do not have a Bible with you, you open a, uh, one of the black ones in the seat back in front of you, get on page 886, you'll be with us. We are continuing our study of the Great Commission. We wrapped up uh, 2 Timothy a few weeks ago, and on September 11th, we're going to start our study in Mark. Um, and in the meantime, we've been doing a seven-week dive into these three verses in Matthew to understand exactly what our marching orders are. And it's, I want to thank each and every one of you who are here today. If you're a guest, we're especially excited that you're here. We know it's hard to try someplace new, and we hope that you will fill out a guest card and stop by the welcome desk on your way out to get a gift. And it's always fun to have some guys from Teen Challenge here. It's not hard when you see um, how they plan events that their leadership's from Louisiana, is it? It's, a, it's an easy... Easy to figure it out, but I don't know about you guys, but having a Cajun burger while getting my rims straight, that sounds like a good way to spend an evening, all right? So, uh, so be thinking about that, and uh, thank you, Josh, and be thinking about that, and, um, and um, if you can be there, be a part of that. They do tremendous work uh, in the name of the gospel, um, and uh, lives are set free constantly through that ministry, and so um, we're, we're happy to be missions partners with them and happy to help them in any way. Uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out uh, into Matthew 28 this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your presence this morning. We thank you for each and every person who's here, each and every person who's listening, each and every person who has set aside this time uh, to to hear from you. And we're grateful for what you've done already and uh, and the opportunity we have to worship you this morning and to fellowship together um, through our group hour, through everything that you've, you've already done today, Lord. We just ask that you will continue it now. Uh, that you will speak loudest and clearest, that you will make your word uh, illuminate in our hearts and minds and come alive, and it will not return to you void. And we ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. So I was standing in our kitchen uh, the other day, and I was prepping uh, some food, cutting up some vegetables and stuff, and uh, uh, Remy, one of our twins, was, was over to the right of me, uh, just in front of our oven, and I, I wasn't really paying that close attention to what she was doing, uh, because I was focusing on what I was doing, and I started to hear uh, some whimpers, right? It's, it's kind of some frustrated little grunts and whimpers, and uh, you got to understand about our house, there, there's four young girls in there, and so I'm constantly hearing crying, so it doesn't even move me anymore, right? I'm emotionally dead inside, right? Okay, so, uh, so the idea that, that there was some whimpering going on, didn't, it didn't snap my attention. Okay, it is, I just kept doing what's going on, and then it kind of progressed to some grunts, and then finally she just lets out this little scream. She just goes like this and clenches her fist, and I'm like, "Whoa, you know, what is going on here?" And she said, "I can't get it to go there," and I was like, "What are you talking about?" Well, it turns out she'd used a towel. She'd pulled a towel off the rack in the oven and dried her hands with it, and she was trying to put it back over, and it was just falling off every time. And the whimper was like the third time she did it. The grunt was like the fifth time she did it, and the, and the scream was like the seventh time she did it. And I finally, I kneeled down her lever. I was like, hey, listen, I've been here the whole time. I've been literally right next to you the whole time. All you had to do was ask Daddy. This is nothing for me. I can hang it right over for you. And I hung the towel up, went back to food prep, didn't think much of it, and then the thought hit me later, like, that's a sermon story. You get that, right? <laughs> like, you can't miss that lesson. And I mentioned it today because we've been spending the last few weeks looking at the Great Commission, and, and these, it's these verses at the end of the book of Matthew that are an essential passage for our faith, where Jesus, while claiming all authority is his, tells us how we should live and what it is that we should be living for. And, and here's why we've been, we've been studying it, right? There, there is no uncertainty in the Great Commission. There's no ambiguity in it, right? The language, he couldn't be more clear. He couldn't be more concise. It's not confusing at all. 
And yet, for so many of us, it's a genuine struggle to actually live this out. We're tempted to ignore it. We're tempted to pass it off to others. We're tempted to draw a finish line short of where Jesus drew it. And I think I know one reason why. And I think it's because we read it wrong. And we hear it wrong. When we hear the language of the Great Commission, our, our, our go-to reaction almost is, is to be overwhelmed. Right? The, the idea that all authority is Jesus, and so we should therefore go and make disciples, which is a high, high bar. And we shouldn't just make disciples. We should make disciples of all nations, and we don't even need to do that. We also need to then teach them to observe literally everything he's commanded us. I mean, because the bar is so high that, that even if we made efforts to this, we feel like we couldn't reach it. No matter how many times we tried, we wouldn't get there. And so for many Christians, despite the clarity of these commands, we end up just kind of taking a pass on it. And we settle for less than what Jesus has so clearly commanded of us. But you see, when you read or hear the Great Commission like that, of some high demanding bar that we are to accomplish on our own and likely never ever will, it's to read and hear it all wrong. It misses out on a crucial part of it. And it's the part that we get to focus on today. Because this part of the Great Commission, I think, is the most misunderstood, most debated part of the entire thing. Yet all you have to do to complete it is just surrender and consent to be buried. And that picture, right? That ordinance carries with it such beautiful significance, which is why Jesus has included baptism right in the middle of the Great Commission. It's different than everything else in there. It's different from every command in there, but I believe it's the one thing that if done rightly makes the rest of it possible. Because to reach a bar this high, we're going to have to stop reaching in our own power. We're going to have to lay ourselves down and appeal to our Father for help. So just a quick reminder of our goals. One of our goals as a church as we go through this is that you'll, you will memorize the Great Commission, that you won't need to turn to Matthew 28 and read verses 18 and 20. You'll just know it. All right, and so one of the things that we've been doing, which we'll do in just a few seconds, is we're going we're gonna to read it together out loud as a church. The second is that we want you to understand it. Because we are so, so tempted to draw a finish line where Jesus didn't draw it, we, we tend to downplay this and not really understand exactly everything that we've been called to. And then the third goal is that once we understand it, that we live it. And so if you would join me in standing this morning for the reading of God's Word, instead of having Scripture readers, we've been doing this together as a congregation. We're going to put this on the screens for you, and we're going to read together this morning our passage of Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. So read with me. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. You can have a seat. If you've got your Bibles open, keep them open to Matthew 28. And we've been breaking this passage down uh, phrase by phrase. And in each week, we've been putting in highlights for you what we're going to focus on today. And so you can see today's focus. And it's actually one of the longer ones in terms of words. To this point, if you haven't noticed, Jesus has been incredibly efficient, right? We, we, we did an entire sermon based on the word go. We did an entire sermon based on two words, make disciples. We did an entire sermon based on the words of all nations because what Jesus has been doing is he's been saying a whole lot of stuff with really small amount of words. And there's nothing that Jesus does thoughtlessly or by accident. So in this section, when he draws it out, 
He doesn't just say baptize them. He says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He has purpose in that. He has set efficiency to the side for a reason. Now, over the centuries, there have been few things more debated in Christian circles than baptism. There are different views over what baptism accomplishes, different views over who should be baptized. There are different views over how much water should be used during baptism and more. And so I want to start this morning with just a point of just kind of really overt honesty so you can know where we're at, okay? There are things that I'm going to teach today that people disagree with me on. And that's not different than any other week. The difference today is that the people who disagree with me are other followers of Jesus. There are people who love Jesus that do not align, align with me or us as a church on this. And so there's two quick things I need you to know about this place. Number one, we don't have a need to be right. It's not what drives us, okay? We, when you are here, we will unapologetically proclaim the truth of God's word. And the reason that we have great freedom in that is simple. We didn't write it, okay? I don't have to stand for this. I don't defend this. This is the Lord's word. And so all I have to do is proclaim it. But I promise you that when we stand on it, when we teach a truth in that word, it's not because we need to be right and we need others to be wrong. That's not a driving force of motivation. Secondly, we do our very best to operate how the Bible says to operate. Now, no one is perfect. No church is perfect. Every single church in person has traditions and backgrounds that have influenced and shaped the way we look at things. But we strive here. We strive to have our practice be shaped by the Bible alone. That's why we call ourselves FBN. You know, our name is actually First Baptist North. It has Baptist in the name. We put no stock in any kind of denomination. We put no stock in being a Baptist church. It's why we said at our last annual members meeting that our future plans are to change the name. Because we are a Bible church. Our authority is God's word. That's where we put our stock. And I tell you all that, all of that to say this. As we unpack baptism today, I'm prayerfully going to do my best to present how we as a church practice this and, how, and what the Bible says about it. And if you grew up part of a different tradition or different experience, then you don't need to feel under attack today because I promise you, you aren't. And if you'd like a follow-up conversation, we invite that. We would love that because we don't need to be right. But to be frank, we feel strongly about where we've landed using the word as our guide. There's a reason we practice it the way we practice it. So right in the middle of his marching orders to the church, as he's giving us our life mission, Jesus commands that we go and make disciples of all nations. And the very next thing he says is that we should also baptize them. Okay, and so we've already said it out loud to help us with goal number one and try to memorize it. No, goal number two is to help us understand this. And so to understand why Jesus would include this in his great commission, I want to ask a series of questions this morning. And the first is this, is that what is happening during a baptism? Now, the chances are high that you've seen a baptism, right? And if you go here, the chances are really likely you've seen one here. We've had nine, and in, in sometime in the, last, like in the last month, there's been nine baptisms alone. And so if you've seen one in our services, you know the process that we go through, where the person stands in the water, their story, their testimony of how Jesus has saved them is read. They, are then, uh, they then make a profession of faith. They are dunked under the water, and then they're brought back up. That's what's happening on the exterior, and so let's dig in beyond that and, and do another level down and ask the question, what is really happening there? And to help us with that, I want us to see this passage in Romans chapter 6. We're going to put this in the screens for you. In Romans 6, Paul is writing and he says this, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. One of the big takeaways from that passage is that there's a lot of imagery in baptism. The the act itself is rich in storytelling. And so if we take the context of Matthew 28 and the context of Romans 6, we can start to get a good picture of what is going on. And there are three important things that are or should be happening during a baptism. And the first is this. There is a recognition of and a surrendering to the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, this part of the Great Commission, it's helpful to be viewed in light of the entire Great Commission. Right? Just as every other part is. that There's no part of the Great Commission that needs to be isolated from the rest. We've been focusing on one each week so that we can do deep dives on it. But what we cannot do is take them out and, and make them separate from each other. Which takes our attention back to how it began in verse 18. Where Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So that's that's how the Great Commission starts. And then if you that that Jesus is king, right? He's in charge, he's building a kingdom that, that he runs, and then look at how verse 20 ends. And he says, And remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And so that's the framework around which we get the Great Commission, that all authority is Jesus and that he's with us always. And so that's the framework that we need to take into understanding what's happening with baptism. And so the simplest answer of why someone should be baptized is this. It's because Jesus said so. That's why. As one with all authority, we do what he says. And so as his disciples, if he commands us to do something, there's no need for debate. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to contemplate it. You don't even need to pray about it. You just need to do it. And so being baptized recognizes the authority that Jesus has over your life, and then it adheres to that authority. But the act itself paints an even deeper picture than that. Beyond just a recognition of the authority that Jesus has, but also there's a surrendering to it. The literal act of, of burying, as Paul puts it, the act of dying to self and being buried means that I am actually laying down my kingship. I'm giving up control, that my desires are no longer to outweigh his commands, that my truth is dissolved by the bright light of his truth, that my dreams and plans and goals all fall away and his plans to me are elevated. The picture is that I am dying. The old me is dying. The old me that wanted to call the shots, the old me that listened to me first, the old me that put others behind me, the old me that contributed absolutely nothing to my salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I'm dying to the old me and surrendering that authority to him, which is exactly how a disciple of Jesus should live. Second thing that's happening is there's a retelling of the gospel story. There's no part of the Great Commission that's just for me or just for you. We've told you in in previous weeks, the, the loudest unspoken message of the Great Commission is that it's not about you. And so when someone is baptized, it's a big day for them, right? Often family members come, friends come. There's kind of a whole support group they have there. There are pictures taken. It's their testimony that is read and shared, and all of this is good, and all this is right. But not even your baptism is about you. The way God has designed baptisms is he's designed it to to bless others. It's why baptisms have a way of always leading to more baptisms, As others hear the story of how Jesus changed your life, it brings him glory. And the visual image that's presented retells the wondrous story of the gospel. 
Have you ever thought about this? When, when Jesus was on the cross and he was in the, the curse of our sin was being laid on him, the punishment of our sin was being put on him, he was upright on the cross. And then when he died, he was laid out, he was buried in the tomb, and, and he didn't stay there long, right? Because on the morning of the third day, he rose again. And that's the image that's being told. When you were upright in the water, your same posture that Jesus was on the cross. And then my favorite joke to people when they're about to be baptized is I tell them, don't worry, I'm only going to hold you under seven or eight minutes, right? The idea is you're, you're going to be buried, but you're not going to stay there very long because then you're raised to walk in his life. And it paints the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus again and again and again. It retells the most important story that could ever be told. And it lets everyone there know that you too can be saved by the same Jesus. And so it retells the gospel story. There's a, a recognition of and a surrendering to the authority of Jesus Christ. And then for the person being baptized, what they're doing is they're stepping into the king-servant relationship. Look at verse 20 again. He says, and remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, in two weeks, Pastor Brandon is going to preach on that very phrase. Now, I already told you, we, we cannot separate different parts of the Great Commission from each other. And so we've already tied baptism back to the authority that Jesus claims in verse 18. But I'm also suggesting this this morning, that baptism is directly related to this promise in verse 20. And how am I going to make that argument? Well, think about it. The, the very act of repentance and belief at the moment of salvation is a recognition. It's a recognition that there is a problem that I cannot fix. It is too big for me. It's too high for me. I cannot fix it. And that problem is that I'm a sinner. And because of my sin, I deserve death and hell. And there's absolutely nothing I can do to change that. That I will die and I'm bound for hell. And there's nothing in my power that I can change that. And so what do I do? I lay down my efforts. I lay down my works. I lay down my abilities. I die to anything that I could ever do to save me. And I trust wholly and completely in Jesus to save me. And guess what he does? Because that's what he does. Then in baptism, the picture is painted of, of me dying and being buried, of going under trusting that I'm going to be raised back up. And of course I am. Because again, that's what Jesus does. That when we die to self, he raises us up to newness of life. And here's what we need to understand. Baptism is a one-time event, but the meaning of baptism, however, is forever. It paints the picture of how we live our lives every day as a disciple of Jesus. Because the way our relationship with God begins is the way that it should continue. Our relationship with God begins with a total surrender, admitting that we can't do it and trusting him. That's how it should go on into the future. Because if we're honest for a second, and it's just for a second, the life that God calls us to in the scriptures is beyond us. To be holy as he is holy to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ, to consider others as more important than myself, to look out for the interests of others more than I look out for my own interests, to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey literally everything that Jesus has commanded us. Figuratively, that's a towel rack that I cannot reach. It's just too high. I can't do it. But when I die to self and I surrender to Jesus, you know, you know what happens? I don't ever have to be king again. He's the king. The success of the mission is on him. The goal and the vision, they're his. All I have to do is be a servant today. That whatever he brings my way today, I'm faithful with. Whatever he brings my way today, I seek to please him with. Whatever he brings my way today, I seek to obey him in it. 
And whatever he brings my way this very day, I seek to love him more. This is why when Jesus taught us to pray, give, give us this day our daily bread. It's why he said, don't worry about tomorrow, for today is enough trouble his own. It's just be faithful as his servant today. We don't need to carry the entire weight of the Great Commission. If we genuinely serve him, he's going to bring opportunities for every single one of those things along the way, and he's going to do so at a pace and a timing that we can handle, not break under. Our job is just going to have to be to fight to keep him as king and us as servant and not trying to take his throne. The second question is what isn't happening during baptism? And there's endless answers to that, but the most important is this. It's salvation. Now, I've heard many people say to me, and they mean well, I want to get baptized because I want to go to heaven. And I want to get baptized because I want my sins forgiven. I, I, I want to make this clear. We fill, the battery behind me, we fill that with water from North Terre Haute City water. There's nothing special or magical about it, Okay. I understand there's a country song released a few years ago where they sing there's something in the water about baptism. Well, unless Carrie Underwood is singing about fluoride, I promise you there's nothing in the water, okay? It's just, it's not special. Now, I don't want want the big takeaway today to seem like I'm downplaying baptism, so I want to keep this as brief as possible, but it's important enough that we need to understand it. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives the very first sermon in the history of the church of Jesus, And he's talking to a bunch of Jews who've gathered in Jerusalem uh, for the Pentecost Pentecost festival. And his message is pretty overt. And it's basically this, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and you all rejected him, and you all killed him. And what happened after that is God raised him from the dead, has seated him at the highest place of honor, and now you have to answer to the one that you rejected and killed. Not a comfortable message. Right? And the crowd there, hearing this, is rightly concerned about this. And they ask Peter a really good question. And so this is what we find in Acts 2. It says, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? It's a really good question. And this is Peter's answer. Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can fully understand how you could read that passage in Acts 2 and come to the conclusion that there's a two-step process to be forgiven of your sins. That you both, number one, have to repent, change the way you think, turn from your sin and believe in Jesus, and number two, be baptized, and then, you forget, then you're forgiven. It's one plus one equals two, right? Which would make baptism required for salvation, as salvation requires forgiveness. But the question is, was Peter telling them two separate things to do, or was he telling them two things required for this one thing to happen? And if you only read Acts 2.38, it seems clear. But you should never only read Acts 2.38. You should never only read a single verse in the Bible ever. It's important for you to know the fullness of the Word of God, everything that it says. It's important for you to know the proportionality of the Word of God, how often it says something, and it's incredibly important for you to know the context of God's Word. And if you read the rest of the book of Acts, you see that baptisms are done almost exclusively right after somebody has a conversion moment. If there's anything that we need to wrestle with as a church, it would be this. Are we letting too much time pass before we do baptisms around here? But there's no other place in Acts, and there's no other place in the rest of the Bible that equates baptism as a required step needed for forgiveness. 
In Acts 16, the jailer comes to Paul and Silas and says, Brothers, what must I do to be saved? They say, Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10, 9, That if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Again and again and again, statement after statement in the Bible that does not include the command to be baptized. But even stronger than that is the concept of grace, the foundational concept that our entire faith is built upon, which is grace. Because here's how Ephesians 2 puts it. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. The fact that salvation is an act of grace, it is a free gift by the will of God, means that this is not something that I could ever earn. Salvation does not come to me by my efforts. It does not come to me by my works. It does not come to me by my actions. And that includes the really best of those. Really great things like being baptized or obeying Jesus. Those are wonderful things. They do not save me. They do not make penalty. do not make payment or restitution for my sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that. So again, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And so baptism is not a saving act. But that doesn't mean that we get to belittle it or downplay it. It's not necessary for salvation, but it's necessary. We just need to keep it in the place that God puts it. The third question I want us to wrestle with is this. What is the significance of the language that Jesus used here? Jesus chose every word of the Great Commission carefully. It would have been far more efficient for him to continue on as he was, to say, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, period. That's not what he says, does it? He carries it out, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why was he so efficient elsewhere and so lengthy on this one? Well, I think there are at least a couple of things at play here that Jesus wanted to be clear on. And the first is this, that his kingdom is unique and distinct and exclusive. There is no other faith with the concept of the Trinity. That there is one God who exists in three persons is uniquely and distinctly and exclusively a Christian concept. And so to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is not to be baptized in the name of some, some idea of God out there. And I know it's not politically correct in 2022, but Jesus was abundantly and repeatedly clear how distinct and exclusive he is, how distinct and exclusive his kingdom is, and how distinct and exclusive his gospel is. John 17, he says, this is eternal life. This is how you know God and you know Jesus whom he sent. In John 14, he said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one gets to the Father but by me. In John 3, we're told that God sent his son into the world to, to whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And it goes on to say, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already. Listen, Jesus was not establishing a kingdom that tells us that all roads lead to the same path. He was not validating every other path. He does not send us out on a mission that tells us to tell everyone, it does not matter your path to God as long as you believe in a higher power. He knew that he was our only hope. We have a problem and he is our only solution. And so when we baptize new disciples, we baptize them into that distinct and exclusive kingdom because he is our answer. Secondly, each member of the Trinity had a major part to play in our salvation. It's right of us to recognize that in baptism. 
God the Father is the source of all, who is eternally gracious. Ephesians 1 says that he chose us before the world began. John 6, that he drew us to himself. God the Son is our Redeemer who left heaven to make it possible, who took on our form and felt every temptation and weakness that we felt. He suffered and died for our sins to buy us with his own blood. God the Spirit, according to John 16, is the one who convicts us of our sin and our need for righteousness. He shows us our need and illuminates the gospel truth in our hearts. And I could go on and on and on today and never get to the full depths of how the Trinity was involved in our salvation, but God is the source of salvation, and all three persons of the Trinity had a role to play in it. And so to be baptized in the name of all three persons, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, is a fitting recognition of their hand in this. Now, last and most important question, the question we should ask about every Bible passage. What does this teach us about God? That's the point of the Bible, by the way. He's God revealing himself to us. And the answer to that is always longer than we come up with on the spot. But here are four things for your, for your encouragement this morning right off the top. This passage teaches us that our God is distinct. There is nobody like the one true God. There's no one who, who, who exists eternally in three persons. He is holy. He is set apart. He is distinct. And so is the kingdom that he's building. And I'm not threatened by the exclusivity of God. I'm not threatened by the exclusivity of his kingdom. I'm not threatened by the exclusivity of his salvation. If he wasn't different and he wasn't set apart, he wouldn't be worthy of our surrender. So he's distinct. Secondly, our God reigns. He starts by saying it, that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father and all his enemies are being systematically put under his feet. And he will reign unchecked in the future. In our baptism and in our life, we submit to that reign. Our God reigns. Thirdly, our God saves. Because that holy, awesome, just, perfect, terrifying, wonderful God did not leave us in our sin. Instead, he pursued us. He took on our form. He lived the sinless life that we could not. He died in our place and rose from the dead, all to offer us forgiveness and adoption and redemption and eternal life. Our God saves. What you need to know now is if you call to him today, he will save you because that's who he is. And lastly, because of all that, our God's worthy. He's worthy of our submission. He's worthy of our surrender. He's worthy of our dying to self. There's no one, who like, there's no one who's like him. There's no one who loved us like he has loved us. There's no one who is more for us than he is for us. There is no one who is greater than he is greater. There is no one who deserves it more than he deserves it. He is great and greatly to be praised, and he is worthy. And this entire great commission that he gives us is a command. That's why he starts with declaring his authority. It's not a suggestion. It's a command, and so as we wrestle with this specific aspect of the command, that we baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, how should we respond to this this morning? Well, the first is this. I, I want us to embrace the distinct nature of our God. Like I said, there's no one like him, and we need to recognize that that's a good thing. There's nobody else who can save you. Don't fight that. There's no other way to salvation except through Jesus Christ. Instead of being upset by that, how about you be thankful he made a way? Because desperate people need a way. Listen, God might not fit into the box that you want him to fit into. In fact, he won't. He's not going to be everything that you wish he would be. He doesn't do everything the way you would want him to do it. And what I want you to see is this. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. 
It's wonderful because he's perfect and I'm not. It's because he's just always and I'm not. It's because he is consistent and fair and everything he does and I'm not. He is endlessly gracious and I am not. Thank God he isn't me. Thank God he isn't like us. Thank God he doesn't operate the way I would want him to operate. And so you don't ever need to apologize for God being distinct. You don't ever need to apologize for God being different or set apart. It's what makes him a good God. It's what gives him the ability and authority to save us. And so to fight against his exclusivity, to fight against his distinction, is to fight against the characteristics of God that give you the only hope you have. And so instead, embrace it. Embrace how distinct he is for the gift it is to us. Then get in his word. Be in this thing. Follow a reading plan so you can be consistently reading it. And, and, and let it, as, as you read this word, let him reveal himself to you. And here's what I can promise you. As you get to know him, you won't be disappointed by who he is. Don't push back against his distinct nature. Embrace it for the gift it is. Secondly, surrender to his kingship. Our relationship with the Lord should continue as it began. In salvation, we, we, have, we realize that we have this huge problem that we cannot solve, and so we surrender it to Jesus, and we surrender it to his grace, and we trust him to cover it. Then in baptism, we, we physically bury the old self, right, and raise to walk in newness of life. It's a beautiful act of submission and obedience in which we are recognizing and surrendering to his authority. But as we've said every week in this series, belief and baptism are not the finish line. They're not We were raised to walk in the newness of life so that for the rest of our days we will live in a surrender to his kingship. We will deny ourselves and follow him. You can trust me on this. God is capable and ready to assume full responsibility of any life that's surrendered to him. If you trust your entire life to him, he's going to handle it. Because the best place that you can ever be is following Jesus. The best place that you can ever be is living inside his will. Baptism is a once-in-a-lifetime event, but surrendering to the kingship of Jesus is a lifetime daily submission. And the last encouragement should be obvious. We've talked about it all morning. It's just be baptized. It's in the Great Commission. It's a command from King Jesus himself. And so if you're here this morning and you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you never trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, that's what you need to do today. You need to repent of being your own answer and trust in him completely to forgive you and save you because there's no one else who can. But if you've done that and you've never been baptized, then the time is now. There's no reason to pray about it. There's no reason to consider it. There's no reason to contemplate it. King Jesus said to do it. That's all the contemplation you need. Do it. So do not delay obedience. Reach out to us. Get the ball started today. We'll get the plan in place today. You need to do this. And then for the rest of us, right? We, we basically have two options left. We can spend the rest of our days trying to reach a bar that is beyond us. We can try to be our answer for the problems that are too big for us. We can try to build a kingdom that pales in comparison to the one that Jesus is inviting us into in Matthew 28. Or we can die to self. And we can surrender our kingship and submit totally to the authority of Jesus Christ. We can make him our king and live as his servant, knowing there is no bar that he cannot reach. And I know which one of those is a lot wiser. So make the right choice. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for just the wonderful, vivid imagery that you've given us in the gift and ordinance of baptism. 
The picture that it tells of Jesus being on the cross, being buried and, and, and rising again. To, and then the same Jesus who says, follow me, so that we would too would die to self, be buried, and rise to walk in newness of life. Lord, it's, it's such a powerful retelling of the gospel story. And so I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who's not yet surrendered their life to that gospel, that if they died today, they would go spend an eternity hell rightly and justly because of the sin in their life and that has not been taken care of, that today would be the day that they meet the grace of Jesus Christ. Today would be their day of salvation, that you would draw them to yourself now, that they would surrender to you, that you would save them because that's who you are. God, if there's anybody here who's, who's made that decision, made that profession, but have not followed you in obedience to the baptism waters, but there's really nothing to pray about. But help them just to take the step today to act in obedience, to do what King Jesus told them to do, that they would come find us and get that in place. But then for the vast majority of this room, God, who have already done those two things, our calling is even harder. It's to surrender, it's to submit, it's to die to self and be buried every single day and to be raised up to walk as a servant of our King. Lord, we're gonna fight against this every single day. Our sinful nature wants nothing to do with this. But would you create in us a congregation of people? Would you create in us a church of disciples who see the value, see the worth, and see the joy in every day submitting and surrendering to your kingship? That we could live with a baptism mindset everywhere we go. Would you do this for our sake and for your glory? And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, before we dismiss our services, we're going to give you a couple minutes just to spend before you head on out and hit all the distractions of life and get your kids and all those things. We want you to have some time to just pray and wrestle with and communicate with God and, and, and ask Him what exactly He's laying on your heart, what exactly He's calling you to do in response. And so this is your time with Him. Please do not waste it. Please do not miss it, but take advantage of it.